If you are a parent, you've probably been haunted by the headlines. A national study is giving us a closer look at the disturbing effects when children are exposed to screens for too long. There's growing evidence that it's training them actually toward attention deficit problems. Kids are becoming nearsighted at an earlier age than ever before. I mean, it's like we get it. Screen time is bad news for young kids. And yet, my guess is that unless you have a home chef, a nanny, an assistant, cleaning help, and are getting eight hours of sleep every night, your kids are probably getting at least some screen time. From Columbia University Children's Health in New York, you are listening to the stuff that matters for kids' health. Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Edith Bracho-Sanchez. I am a new mama who also happens to be a pediatrician, and I want to personally invite you to join me in talking to some of the most brilliant minds of our time as I ask them, what are the things that really matter today for our kids to turn out okay? For today's show, I sat down with Dr. Rebecca Diamond, a pediatrician and fellow mom to a very active five-year-old. We talked about our love-hate relationships with screens in our homes, how we've learned to set realistic goals, and ways that we think you can do it too. Very quickly, as candid as we are in the chat that you're about to hear, I do want to note for a moment that the official recommendations on screen time in young kids are based on pretty good science. We know that little brains are growing at an astonishing rate. I'm talking a baby's brain doubles in size in the first year of their life and gets to about 80% of its adult size by age three. After that, as the brain continues to grow, brain circuits are being solidified and becoming more efficient. Unfortunately, screens and excess can interfere with all of the wonderful development happening in our little one's brains. And yet, abstinence from screens has become nearly impossible for many of us, as you will hear. Really quick, Please remember the content on this podcast is provided for general information only and should not be relied on as a substitute for any professional medical advice or treatment. The views shared on the show solely reflect the expertise and experience of the host and our guests. So with that, here's our chat. Enjoy. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Rebecca, I like to start every conversation asking our experts to explain their day job. You are an amazing pediatric hospitalist for people who don't know what that means. What do you do? Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. So I'm a pediatric hospitalist, so I take care of kids only when they're admitted into the hospital. Conditions like asthma, pneumonia, infections, you name it. Complicated conditions, simple conditions. And I work here with amazing residents and nurse practitioners to take care of kids in that setting. Yeah, so you are taking care of kids when they land in the hospital, which unfortunately happens to some kids. We try really hard to keep them out of the hospital, but of course you're there when kids need you. Yes. Rebecca, in preparing for today's conversation, I have to admit I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole last night. I just wanted to go back and try to understand how we got here. And I want to share with you two quick facts that really got me as I was going down this complete rabbit hole. So the first is that iPads were introduced in 2010, and people probably already know that at home. But in my mind, when I saw that, I thought to myself, gosh, it hasn't been that long, really. And then I saw this study in the Journal of Pediatrics that said that by 2015, up to 75% of young kids had an iPad. 
That's crazy. It was five years from introduction to when 75%, three out of four kids had their iPad. And my guess is that it's probably even worse in the you know years since pandemic. My question to you is, how did all of this happen? How did we let it get so bad? So I'm going to answer this question in a super long, convoluted way like I like to do, so bear with me. Because <laughs> I think first, a little bit of context. As you mentioned, I am the mother of a young child. And a lot of the stuff I do, the work I do with pediatrics and parenting and the interface of that, of course, it happens in my clinical work daily at the hospital. But a lot of it happens in the parenting spaces that I sit in. So I am very active online answering parent questions, seeing what the real world concerns are. And I recently wrote a book to try to explain how we can best merge the realities of daily parenting, which is harder and harder. As we know, pandemic parenting was just the tip of the iceberg in this kind of escalating challenge that is parenting, and how we balance that with the real science that you and I and our pediatrician colleagues know is important. And so this topic, the screen time topic, it's such a huge one, and it's one that is so, we're a little stuck in these details and these black and whites and these all or none mandates without taking a step back and asking exactly what you're asking. How did this happen? Why are we even using so many screens? Mm -hmm. Is it bad? Why is it bad? How is it bad? Could parts of it be good? Is there a reason we're doing this? Is something lacking in society that is making parents turn to screens? So yes. It's, it's a jumbled mess, and we can untangle it as best we can. But the first question, why did this happen? You know, screens are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. We are in a society now where I'm about one inch from my phone right now as we speak. I'm fighting, holding mine. Literally fighting <laughs> the urge to look at it. Screens are addictive. Our whole life is on it. And it's not too long ago that before this whole screen time as, you know, almost a, a naughty word, for kids, it, it's not too long ago that we were kind of pushing screens, not necessarily pediatricians, but educational companies, educators. Do you, I don't know if you remember, I think I was already an adult by the time it was like, let's get a leapfrog and a VTech into every class. Let's get a tablet. It's mm -hmm. the wave of the mm -hmm. future. So I say all this to say when parents feel like they're failing somehow or they're using these screens or we've gotten to this horrible place. You didn't just go there. It's not like you did something wrong, right? It's not like someone said, God, don't use screens no matter what. And you were like, I have to use it. I love screen. You know, right? we got here honestly. Yeah. You know, they were really pushed and then they filled a void, I think, that would otherwise be filled by societal supports and and here we are now in our sort of very love-hate relationship with them, with this weird interdependence. Yeah. And I have to tell you that last point you make of filling a void that would otherwise be filled by societal support. I feel that deeply in my core. I mean, I have to tell you, there's so many times where I wish I had more help, but I don't. Mm -hmm. And the screen fills a purpose and the screen gets it done. So my next question for you, Rebecca, not to put you on the spot, but knowing that you're someone who has been candid and mm -hmm. sharing the things that go on in your house, what's going on at home? How much screen is your child getting? Highly variable, but highly a lot. 
Definitely. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say it's a crazy, unregulated screen time orgy and there's no developmental activities. That's a discredit to me and my husband and the hard work we're doing. But at the same time, yeah, we use a ton of screens as needed. And I think the big shifting point for me, which I've written about openly both online and in my book, is there were a few different shifts that changed my relationship with screen time. The first was I was a resident when my daughter was born. I was in my last year of residency. And I went back to work. Speaking of societal supports, I went back way too early. I could not get the time I needed. I had many medical and emotional reasons to be out longer. I just wasn't. I wasn't able to. And so I remember my daughter was maybe five or six months old. And we had been really good about no screens. I had sort of not really... Like, you would have them in the background, but she was an infant. She didn't really want to sit and watch a screen. And I was like, okay, we can do this. I'm going to go the whole 18 months with almost no screen use. And then I was on a series of calls, like 24-hour overnight calls in the PICU. In her pediatric ICU. (laughs) And my nanny got sick. And I was more or less on my post-call days and between night shifts suddenly tasked with watching my child. And it was like, oh, I I might actually die if I don't sleep. Like, I feel like I'll literally die. You just felt that sick. I was like, this is torture. This is literally how you torture people. And so I put her in her little exorcister. I put on some stupid YouTube videos, whatever was going to be the best to keep her quiet. And I slept for two hours. And then I could function. And, And it was kind of this moment of shifting for me in my, you know, challenging new parenthood, but relatively privileged parenthood, where I was like, oh, this is the first time where it is so clear the benefits of screen time outweigh the risks. I mean, it's so unfortunate that so many people find themselves in situations like the one that you are describing, of really turning to the screens to fill a need Mm -hmm. and a lack of support. And I have to tell you, and again, being candid, same thing has happened to me at home. Yeah. I mean, there have been times where William, my little guy, has gotten sick. He is 18 months now. And again, I've been with him at home. And again, I have things I cannot wait Mm -hmm. for work or because I'm really feeling completely depleted and I've parked him in front of a screen and it's not long I have to tell you he doesn't sit there long he already wants to move and wants to be on the go and do his own thing but but I've done it or times where I need to get something done around the house right I need to do the dishes quickly or I need to finish fixing dinner because I need to feed him and nobody else is around and I turn it on just for him to hold still I mean really it gets the job done. Yeah. But I wonder also, Rebecca, in thinking about how we got here and what's going on in our own homes, do you think the way that we perceive children and what we expect of kids has shifted as well a little bit? How do you mean in terms of their behavior? Yeah. So I'll tell you, I was just on my way here covering up the subway steps and I see this mom who is multitasking mm-hmm. and has a toddler on an iPad and that toddler's holding still. I mean, that toddler near the train station is not trying to run away, mm-hmm. is not trying to explore, is not trying to do anything else. That toddler was quote unquote being good. Right. And I just thought to myself, gosh, is what we are expecting of kids shifting because of the behavior that we observe when we offer an iPad or a phone? I actually hadn't thought of that. I think that's an interesting point for sure. I think, yes, I think the expectations we have for kids and parents is constantly shifting. And I think as we become 
more restrained ourselves and this expectation that everyone needs to be able to kind of keep it together. This is not a new issue. As you know, we have a lot of issues with attention deficit and what we're expecting of children who have different attention abilities and executive functioning, the less physical activity, the less free play we have, and then the more structure that we're inserting, perhaps at developmentally inappropriate intervals. I think that's all related. But I also think, you know, my big thesis statement is that we are failing kids, but it's almost always society. It's almost never parents. And this is from someone who's a hospital pediatrician. So I see abuse and neglect. I don't take that lightly. But 99% of the time, we have very caring, loving, well-intentioned, attentive parents who are being tasked with the impossible. You know, income inequality is rising. The pandemic just showed how little support we have for parents, no matter what happens. God forbid your child has a medical issue and then you have to put your attention there. So the lack of supports really creates a series of kind of micro crises, a little series of crisis moments where you just have to get through. And so maybe your three-year-old suddenly has to sit still for some reason in your life. That's not what we should expect of kids. And I agree, we're putting a lot on it, but I think that's because we offer so little to parents and educators and caretakers in terms of what's the alternative to that in that moment. Have your kid run around the subway or have your kid go to the park? Sure. But what would that look like in the society? How are we supporting those alternative things? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And to take a quick pause, you and I are familiar with this. We think about it all the time because it is our job to think about it all the time. But for people who aren't thinking about it as frequently as we are, what are the recommendations, right, from mm. the American Academy of Pediatrics? The Academy for Everyone at Home is the organization that really tells us as pediatricians what we should be recommending in our clinics. It is based on science. What are those recommendations, Rebecca? So correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure maybe you're even more up to date. I know that in 2016 was kind of the big AAP shift, the American Academy of Pediatrics, that really started saying less is more is a good idea for screen time. It was already in the ambient atmosphere. But like you said, I'm sure articles like that 2015 study showing how much screen use was just a mainstay of childhood and some other emerging studies suggesting relationships with brain function and executive function and just some of the potential associations. Again, not causation per se, and we can go through all the ways in which this data is complicated, but suggesting that probably unlimited solo screen time all the time is not a great idea. That led to a restriction that was based pretty much on age. So I believe it was under two years old. It's kind of like, don't do any. And then over that, you know, you try to be high quality. You try to limit to very small amounts a day, ideally like 30 minutes a day. That was based on expert consensus and some compelling data about associations. And then I remember in 2019, when the WHO guidelines came out that were slightly stricter, honestly, yeah. and were even more restrictive, there was an understandable backlash of, I understand I should not be doing a lot of screens, but I don't know if I can do none. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then, of course, 2020 came around, and that's my second turning point of my relationship to screen time. If my husband was working thankfully remotely, but full days. Our nanny was not yet. And again, I'm so lucky to have had these supports, but we didn't yet have our nanny full time. 
and I was working frontline here in this hospital during the March 2020 COVID surge. Yes. I don't know who was going to watch my two-year-old except for Coco Melon and, right. <laughs> and Baby right. Shark. I like. Know. Someone's got to keep her yeah. going. You yeah. know, we can only Engaged do so much. and entertained. Yeah. And that was a crisis for us. And the crisis, as you know, we see with our patients who have even more challenging circumstances. What else would they have to do? Lose their job, lose their livelihood. Yeah. That, I think, was a good turning point to understand, just like we are talking about how sometimes screen time can be a marker of, you know, or an inability to abstain from screen time can be a marker of privilege. It can be a marker of the things that are replacing screen time. And if you don't have something to fill that void and screens fill that void, I want parents to understand that that's okay. You can still strive to reframe your relationship with screens without feeling somehow that it's your fault that you have to use them. Yeah. And I think what you mentioned about the backlash that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the World Health Organization have faced when they've put out these guidelines, I mean, it's understandable, right? It's mm -hmm. sort of like, oh, you're asking me to do something and yet I have no support to do the thing that right. you're asking me to do. And yet they are based on science. I mean, the studies really do show and it's concerning, right? Yeah, the no, kids absolutely. who spend too long in front yeah. of screens, you know, have all kinds of quote unquote worse outcomes yeah. later on in life, right? Like academic achievements mm -hmm. in terms of learning, reading levels. It's real. Yeah. And yet it's really hard. It's really hard. And I think a good, maybe this is actually even more action something that we can dive into is that the studies are compelling. And yet sometimes even by experts and even by parents, they're misinterpreted. So it's not to say that screen time isn't something to be on the lookout for. And there certainly are reasons we should be alarmed and change things. But not all screen time is created equal. Tell us more <laughs> about that, Rebecca. So this is when we speak about instead of just saying what not to do, and I try to give guidance about what to do or how I created a framework of listen, I'm going to have screens. I can't do abstinence from screens. It's yeah. never going to happen for me or my child. But how can I build a relationship full of here's what we will try to do proactively to make the screen time use as limited and productive as possible? Mm -hmm. You know, obviously knowing that you weigh risk and benefits in the moment. Um, one thing to realize in a lot of these studies is there is certainly evidence that a lot of the quote-unquote harms or even real harms of screen use have to do with when it's sedentary, when your kid is strapped in, when your kid is sort of given the you must sit still, here's a car seat and an iPad. That is a very different thing both with data and also just from common sense science than if you put on the original Mary Poppins like I did this weekend with my child. And you watch together, And I'm you watch sure. it, and you get yeah. up and you sing together, you know? So I know it seems intuitive, but sometimes that needs to be called out yeah. and say, oh, it's not the same thing that I watched a movie with my 18-month-old. That's not two hours, therefore I'm a terrible parent. I've broken the rules. But that's going to be different in terms of their developmental and physical and everything that's going on. They are going to experience that differently than if you said, okay, for two hours, you're literally going in a chair strapped in and here's nonstop Coco Melon. And, and this is someone who's done that. <laughs> Strap their kid <laughs> in a chair and put on nonstop Coco Melon. So it's not a judgmental thing. But it took me a while to realize, well, that is different than a rainy day movie sing-along. Yeah. But it can be hard to get out of those 
yeah. black and white extremes. You've seen it. You've seen it happen in your home. You've seen it both ways. I wonder also, one thing that I have found at home in trying to be intentional about how I use it and when I use it and, and be mindful of it all, I wonder if you've noticed differences around when you give the iPad in certain behaviors. So for example, with my child, I really try not to do it during mealtime. Mm-hmm. Mealtime, I really try to protect from screens and I really try not to do it during a tantrum because yeah. what I've found is that he calms down quickly in mm-hmm. the moment and yet the tantrums that follow are so much worse. It's almost like we got nowhere when I just gave the iPad as like a quick fix. And I wonder if you've had those experiences and if you've created rules around those things. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have. So I don't have them all in my head right now, but I have more or less 10 <laughs> screen time commandments that I try to follow. You Look know, at I, you. I know. I actually, I have written them down and I have a whole chapter on that. But I talk about one of the commandments is absence isn't possible. So screens will be around learn to deal with them. And another one is what I was talking about, which is that not all screens are created equal. But yet another one is sort of, again, like to your point is how you are using them when you are using them, just some sort of intentionality Mm -hmm. really will empower you and will also frame the relationship they have to screens. So using a screen as a reinforcement for a tantrum or as a self-soothing, that's different, right? That is using it as a reward that is using it as a self-soothing technique, just like I check my phone every two seconds when I'm anxious or bored. That's that pathway versus, okay, this is an activity. I have two phone calls now, you know, we'll watch a movie, you know, it's on the TV. It's not you holding an iPad. If you have that set up, it's not just you strapped somewhere watching it on my cell phone while I whatever, you know, just just building this intentional framework. And yes, not doing meals. I'm a big fan of family meals as much as possible without screens or any sort of interruptions like that. I think that really makes a difference. And of course, there will be exceptions to the rule. You'll go on an airplane and your kid will get strapped in and watch. I know, I know. And a tablet. And that's just what it is. Or they'll go and be in. We have kids in the hospital who We have to do procedures. We have to take blood draws. I'm not going to sit there and be like, well, you actually already had 30 minutes, so I'm going (laughs) to let you cry while I do a blood – like, no. No. And it works. Listen, I remember, right, when I used to work inside the hospital, now I mostly see kids as a primary care pediatrician in the outpatient clinics when they come for checkups, which is lovely. But I remember back when I did do some of the work that you now do – It's tough and it helps. And I think there are situations where it does get you out of a pinch, right? The airplanes, you know, again, needing to do something every day, but even other situations like the hospital. So, yeah, I am a big fan of not having a black and white and creating some sort of framework Mm -hmm. and intentionality around your use of screens. Now, I do also want to ask you, Rebecca, how have you found that screen time and kids' relationships with screen evolve with age? And how have you seen this at home? And how have you seen it with your patients? Yeah, I mean, that's a big topic for sure. My experience personally goes up to age five with my child. (laughs) So it's interesting when they're really little, they are not that interested in screens. I mean, 
it definitely catches their eye and they'll pay attention to it, but they don't necessarily have the desire or even attention to sit and watch a full-length movie. Mm -hmm. And so it actually sometimes can be hard to use the screen as a tool. They still will want to play with you and do all of that, which is great. But as they become older and they are drawn more to the screens, they have the attention for it, I think it becomes something that you notice them really start to crave and ask for. And for me, it's really the toddler years that I find much more challenging than the infant years. Yep. When kids are just, I want this show, I want it now. No, don't turn it off. Tantrum, tantrum, tantrum. Mm -hmm. Can confirm. As a mom of a toddler (laughs) at home, can confirm. Yes. (laughs) You know, and then from there, there's a little more regulation to understand limits and, and the rules that you're setting and the certain idea that If your rule is that screens come on for 30 minutes after dinner and it's this kind of show, they can usually understand that, you know, you're past that toddler dysregulation phase. But, you know, beyond that, I think it's really variable. It depends on how screens are being used in your home, how they're being used at school. Do your kids have phones, tablets, social media? That's a whole different can of worms. And and that definitely complicates The equation about how hard or easy it is to sort of manage screen time. Yeah. And I think one thing we haven't really talked about that much, but how much you are using your screen, right? And and all of this and how much of an example you are setting. Yes, I could not. So speaking of my commandments, that's one that I wish I had put number one in retrospect, because that was another light bulb moment for me of what really matters is how I sort of in having my own relationship with screens. It's almost certainly more damaging for me to have a moment where I'm so consumed with anxiety that I'm sitting there on my phone. It's like glued to my eyeballs. I can't even have a conversation with my child. If I'm doing that for an hour, that's certainly more stressful and reinforcing all these unhealthy adaptive mechanisms and decreasing her developmental interaction way more than, again, that two-hour movie where we're hanging out. So being mindful of your own screen use, you know, in general in parenting, being mindful of your own habits, it's going to reap so many benefits because, one, you don't realize the million ways in which your things are affecting them. And I mean that in an empowering way, not in a guilt-inducing way, in the sense that you can actually focus on working on yourself, and that will affect how you interact with your kid. And it models it for them. Yeah. You show them what it's like to be mindful and regulated with screens, and they learn that, oh, yeah, screens are everywhere, and I have some control over how I interact with them. Yeah. That's a life skill. It is absolutely a life skill. And it is so true that you really learn so many things about yourself when you have a child. I can't even tell you, this is like a whole nother episode, the number of things I've caught my child doing and I've gone, what in the, and then I'm like, oh, wait, I do that. (laughs) I do that. That's where you learn to do this thing Uh or this one other thing. It's because I do it and it absolutely applies to screens and screen time, right? Yeah. Like when your two or three-year-old is like, okay, okay, all right, all right, all right, to someone (laughs) dismissively. And I'm like, how dare you? And then I'm like, oh, that's what I say to people. (laughs) Oh, that's what that sounds like. Yep, it is a mirror being held up to your face. (laughs) And Rebecca, I debated whether to even ask you this question, but let's go there. Is there any world in which you feel 
the not giving an iPad to a child, the not giving a phone later on in life to a child slash preteen deprives them of anything, really. I mean, whether it's digital skills or social cohesiveness with their peers, to call it that way. Yeah. Is there any world in which you worry about that or wonder about that? Yeah, I think I think about that all the time as someone who I was just slightly too old. I don't want to age myself, but really too old to have all of this available as a teen. And okay, I'm very much too old to have had this available <laughs> as a child or teen. But now seeing all this and thinking, gosh, as my daughter gets older, what happens when she asks me for a social media account, when she asks me for a phone? Her friends have these, I don't know the name for the type of phone that can only call their parent, you know, these sort of... Like you press a button and it's sort of like a toddler cell phone type thing. Sounds great, but I don't know anything about that. Is that good? Is It it seems like a good safety thing to have, an important thing. But is that sort of setting up prematurely a strange relationship with technology? I don't know. And I think the bottom line is we don't have all the answers. It is, to your point... The exponential growth of technology, the exponential influence that it's had on children and families, we're always going to be playing a bit of catch up. And there is going to be a lot of guesswork involved. And the guesswork can be backed by science and expertise. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everyone for yourself, figure it out. Right. Not at all. But giving yourself that grace of, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to have the right answer that's perfect, but I just have to trust that it's the right answer at the time. And so do I envision myself potentially being in a situation where the benefits of a child having technology or having more interaction with technology than is recommended is actually real? And I would, I think, sure. I could certainly see situations where I want my child to have a phone or I want her to have her own tablet or something, you know? And it's it's just that risk-benefit balance. Yeah. And what a better way to bring this episode to a close, Rebecca, than with that notion of balance? But just to quickly recap before we go, because I do think there's been some important nuggets of information throughout our conversation today. Screens have unfortunately been associated with a number of negative effects on kids' brains, from trouble sleeping and poor vision to worse emotional regulation and attention spans to developmental delays and more. At the same time, however, screens are everywhere and it has become difficult for many parents, ourselves included, to fully abstain. So it is imperative that we learn how to deal with screens. Our tips, learned through trial and error, but also informed by the latest science, are to first be intentional about what you use and what you do not use screens for. In our case, we do not use them for self-soothing or as a reward. And to also be intentional about when you use them. We, for example, don't use them at mealtime. And lastly, be a good role model and try to watch along when you can. Rebecca, it's been such a pleasure. Tell people where they can find you. Thank you so much. This is such an important topic, and I'm so glad to have you speaking out to this and sharing your expertise as well. So my name is Rebecca Diamond. You can find me online in a variety of places, most notably on social media at Parent Like a Pediatrician, named after my book, Parent Like a Pediatrician, which is a guide for you to help kind of keep your sanity and all of the science and all of the safety right intact during your child's first year. 
Mm-hmm. Highly, highly recommend her account, her book. Now you know it, Parent Like a Pediatrician. Thank you so much, Dr. Rebecca Diamond, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you at home for joining me on the Stuff That Matters for Kids Health podcast. If you liked our show, make sure to tune back in next week. Leave us a rating and review and help us spread the word about our show. That's right. We'd love it if you could tell a parent friend IRL in real life or just drop a link on your group chat. We'll take that too. You can also find us and more information on Kids Health on our social media channels at Kids at Columbia. I'm Dr. Edith Bracho Sanchez in New York, and I'll see you next time.